Philemon, the book of Philemon, we turn to this morning. And verse 8 is where we'll pick up in our study. And that is the beginning of really the, the heart of the appeal that Paul makes in this letter. Paul to Philemon, a friend of his, a believing brother of his in in Colossae, we believe. Paul, of course, is imprisoned in Rome, about a thousand miles distant from Colossae, and yet writes a very personal letter, the most personal, perhaps, of his letters, uh, notwithstanding, of course, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, but this to a specific individual that all the issues related to that in, contained in that letter relate to that individual, Philemon, which is to say, as it pertained to this runaway slave, Onesimus. There's so much of the history that I could rehearse, but I won't for sake of time. You can go back and, and uh, of course, read the earlier text and, or listen to some of the past uh, sermons and so forth. But uh, moving from verse 8 then, and I'm not sure how far we'll get. It's kind of, how, how do you break apart this thought? There, there's so many things that Paul layers on as he as he works through this text and how even he speaks about Onesimus, whom probably in in Philemon's mind is a worthless, runaway, renegade, law-breaking criminal type. And, you know, as gracious as Philemon wants to be or is, has proved to be toward believers, there's no way that Onesimus is a believer. Look what he did in my head. Look, he ran away. He stole from me. How can I ever think highly of him? And so Paul is structuring his letter such that he is allaying, really diffusing the issues that Philemon has toward this former slave or you know, what he thought was a former slave, ran off. We don't know when he's ever going to come again. And if he does come back, I have a Roman you know, right as a Roman citizen to execute this runaway slave, kill him for what he has done against me and my household. And so there's a lot of emotion going on here. And not even with Philemon, all of his angst, angst and anxieties and anger and all this but also on Paul's behalf, or from Paul's perspective, a lot of emotion going on there. We have a man who's been in prison or been un, you know, in custody for close to you know, four or five years at this point for the sake of the gospel, which you'll mention here in this passage. But he has an emotional attachment to Onesimus also. Didn't know him beforehand. Maybe was introduced through Epaphras, and we've looked at that possible history before. But it was through Paul's ministry, his speaking ministry in under house arrest in Rome, that Onesimus came to faith in Christ Jesus, who was born again, and not just born again and then went off his own way, but then attached himself so heavily, so heartily to Paul and ministered to him and was so, uh, became part of Paul's ministry, which is interesting because we don't know about Onesimus other than what he writes here in Philemon and what he mentioned back in Colossians. Onesimus, one of your number, greets you, says hi uh, to the Colossians. And yet Paul said, he has become a part of me, a part of my ministry, and I would have kept him with me, he says in the course of this, this thing, but I didn't want to do anything, you know, forcing your hand. So all these things are coming together, emotional imp from Paul, emotional struggles on Philemon's part. Then Onesimus is there wondering, okay, am I going back to Philemon to be executed? Because that's that's what I expect as a runaway slave. That's what, you know, I know friends of mine that, that have been executed because of their rebellion against the, the laws of Rome. And so just a lot of upheaval going on here. And in the course of this, Paul is so careful to to write a letter that is gracious, that reminds Philemon of, of God's grace to him, but also the grace, the love, the kindness, the faith that Philemon has shown to Christ and to others, and really, um, I wouldn't say pulls the rug from under Philemon, but really 
establishes grace and love and compassion and really an unspoken word doesn't appear anywhere in this letter, but that word really drives the whole narrative of this, and that is forgiveness. Yes, Philemon has wronged you. Yes, you are justified in your anger and your vengeance, desire for vengeance, but let me just tell you, you violated God's law. You violated God's holy standards. You've kicked away Christ, and yet Christ, in his kindness, has now forgiven you. He has brought you near to God the Father. Can you, Philemon, show the same grace that you have been shown? Can you show that grace to Onesimus? And so all these things are going on in this text. It's tremendous, even how Paul builds it out. So we're going to start in verse 8, and again, we'll see how far we get. Verse 8 says, Therefore, though I have much boldness in Christ, to command you to do what's proper, yet for love's sake, I rather plead with you. We'll pause right there. Verse 8 says, you know, based on your love, based on the, the ways that you have shown kindness to other people, you are just uh, notorious in the best sense, notorious, uh, famous for your, for your love, your compassion toward other people. If you saw that back in uh, verse, uh, verse 5, he says, I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And he says, therefore, based on what I know, what I hear about you, and uh, both through Epiphras and maybe Onesimus also brought a report of Philemon's work and and uh, character. Wow, this is a tremendous. This is Philemon is a tremendous man. He says, therefore, you know, I have much boldness. I could I could tell you what to do. I could tell you, um, this is you know, get over it. This guy's a believer now. You shouldn't treat him as a slave anymore. Just get over whatever anxiety, anger you have. Just move on. Forgive and forget. Paul doesn't approach it that way. He says, although I could, I, I could have much confidence, much boldness, much uh, freedom to speak in the ways and, and command people around, boss people around, and, and um, you know, micromanage people's lives and tell them what they ought to do based on your profession of faith and so forth. Well, if you're really a Christian, you ought to do this. Well, yes, but let's approach it a little bit more tactfully, shall we? Let's, let's approach the, the speaking of truth to one another, the, even the conviction, the reproving of one another, because we are to reprove. Uh, to show each other our fault. Matthew 18 teaches that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says that the word of God is, or excuse me, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness. So this, this word is useful for telling us what's right. This is Warren Wearsby who summarized it. Telling us what's right, showing us how we're not right, how to get right, and then how to stay right. I think that's a good summation of those those different aspects of how the scripture is useful. But that part about reproof, 2 Timothy 2.25 says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Don't be quarrelsome. Even Proverbs talks about being sweetly reasonable, um, that a, a wise person makes knowledge acceptable. There are so many different ways that we could just come out with guns a and saying, this is the way it ought to be, and just change. Instead, reasonably, graciously, recognizing I am as hard-headed, as stiff-necked and rebellious as the person I'm trying to, to minister to. And they're, they, you know, I need to take a minute, take, take 10 minutes, take, you know, count to 10 or something. I can be the same way. You can be the same way. Be gracious to one another. Paul is being so gracious. He says, I could have come in and just told you, I could have written a letter, uh, could have just put a, a sign on Onesimus' chest, I'm back, forgive me, let's go on. That's not how Paul approached it. He says, 
I have much boldness. I have much freedom in Christ. A, uh, this confidence that, that I could command you to do. I know that you would do it because you're such a good Christian man, but not to manipulate other people into obedience. It ought to be, as Paul is very careful to, to delineate or, or lay out here, it ought to be and needs to be a voluntary choice. I have Paul says, Philemon, you need to choose yourself to forgive. I can't forgive for other people. I've heard that there was a case that there was a, somebody who sinned against another person and somebody, a third party entirely removed from it said, we forgive the offender. Wait a minute. You're not the one who's offended. You're a third party over here. What are you doing saying we forgive the offender? It's the one who's been wronged that needs to forgive if that would, would happen. And even the the being ready to forgive can be different from the actual transaction of forgiveness. They're having a gracious, hospitable, kind, compassionate heart toward other people, if that person never repents and confesses their sin, does that mean I need to maintain my bitterness, always uh, stoking the fire of anger and injustice and venge, revenge? No, no, because the other person is oblivious to whatever sin they just, they're a notorious sinner. What do, what do you expect from them? For you, though, get over it. Don't meditate upon those. Don't take your your daily devotions from your your journal of upsets kind of thing. Your how you you know I've been wrong this way and I've been you know this person. And, oh, I remember. Oh, that was a good that was a good upset. I remember. Oh yeah. I remember. Don't you know? Write it down so you know what upsets you. But then throw it away. I mean, good grief. Move on. Paul is so kind. He's being kinder than I am right now. Right. He is the one who is so gracious to to say. I can I can command you, I can give you a, a direct order, and I know that you'd probably fulfill it, but I don't want to do that. I want to plead with you. He says, I could command, I could give you know detailed instructions. This is what you ought to do. And then as this comes, you smile. You shake his hand. You receive him. We could have rehearsed the uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? What did the father do? He ran. He, all, the, all the things. Paul could have you know, given a light item thing. Philemon, be careful, do this. Oh, don't forget that. And when he comes, do this and say this and make sure you smile. He didn't do it. I, I'm not giving you detailed instructions about these things. This this word of command is almost like what well, is like when Jesus commands even the unclean spirits. And what do they do? Rebel. And no, they obey him. They don't have any other choice or option. They obey Christ. He commanded and they obey uh, many times we see that word uh, mentioned. Actually, a lot of times, most of the times in Mark, Mark's gospel, Jesus, often we think of just a, a winsome fellow, just, you know, nobody really notices in the room kind of guy. No, he came, he commanded wind and waves. He commanded demons. He commanded people. He commanded the people sit down by groups on the green grass who could feed them. Uh, all these different things that God, Christ, commanded to be done. And there was no other option but that it would it was done. So he says, I am being uh, careful not to give you a command, not to, to, to throw my weight as an apostle, as whatever uh, you know, authority I have. I am pleading with you, he says, yet, even though I could do it, yet for love's sake. Now the question is, what kind of love? Whose love is it? Philemon, Paul talked about the love that Philemon has back in verse 5. Your love, which is shown toward all the saints. I know that you're so so generous in your love to other people. When I says all the saints. Maybe he didn't know, Philemon didn't know, that Onesimus was now a believer. And Paul says he's going to get to that, that good news, in just a moment. But he says, based on your profession of love, your your example, your reputation for love, that you should 
also then love uh, this other this person Onesimus, who is is probably by the way standing next to Tychicus as Philemon is reading this you know un- unrolling the scroll and reading it and saying Onesimus what are you and okay but that letter from Paul me read Onesimus you know you wrong but then he's reading this letter and and again that emotional turmoil that's going on at that time the love that that Paul references here may be Philemon's reputation for love. It may be the love that Paul has for Philemon. I am appealing to you because of my love for you, because of my uh, support of you, because I want to see you prosper and, and, and grow and succeed. I want to see Christ formed more fully in you. And so it could be on the basis of that love. It could be on the basis of just general Christian love, right? Uh, Oh no! Oh no, man! Anything except to love one another, or the greatest commandment is this: love God and love others, or uh, these this idea, this this expression of selfless, sacrificial service of thinking of other people, doing what is best for other people, even if it costs you uh, vengeance or the, the fulfillment of your rights and desires and, and so forth. You serve. You love other people. He says, "Yet for love's sake, I rather plead with you." Notice it says. At the end of that phrase, first phrase, I command you, I could command you to do what is proper. That idea of properness, propriety is that which is fitting, that which is to be expected, that which is appropriate to the situation. This word we saw back in Colossians that uh, women ought to submit to their husbands as this is proper or fitting in the Lord. And so it's just what's customary, just what is, what is to be expected in the situation. This is the expected, um, uh, expression of your Christianity, of being in Christ. I expect you to do what's proper. I could command you to do it, but I'm going to rather plead with you that you would volitionally, you know, from the will, des- desiring God's work in your life to be fully realized in this specific situation. He could command him to do what's proper, but he doesn't. He says, I'm appealing to you. I'm pleading with you. I am encouraging. This word plead, your translation may be exhort or encourage. It's that word that we hear often translated, encourage or um, not admonish. That's a different word, but uh, uh, coming alongside and, and calling people to be better than who they are, which is to say, Let's let's see Christ fully formed in you. Let's see Christ fully evident in your words, in your actions, your attitudes, your relationships here now with, with Onesimus. And he says, I rather plead with you, as so much as I could command you, as so much as I could, you know, throw my weight around. I am. I think the better move here is to lay that aside and to more highly, or in a superior way, a better way to do this is to plead with you. This is. An alternative way, I mean, certainly you can, Paul could have commanded, but he says, I'm going to plead with you, and he does. Now, in verse uh, 9, this is an interesting way that, that Paul says. And the question is, is he humbling himself? Is he referring to himself in a, in a rather, uh, not derogatory, but a rather humble way? Or is he using this this expression to remind Philemon of his identity as an apostle of Christ, as an ambassador of Christ, as a prisoner for the sake of Christ, not one who's old and infirm and worthy of compassion and respect in that regard, but one who is fully authorized by Christ to command certain things in the churches and for those who are in Christ. And so you could take this either way. I'll approach it from both ways as we go through it. But he says here in verse 9, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and I'm also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
this this uh, thing. It's a concessive clause. It's, he says it's kind of like he said back in, in verse 8, although I could have commanded you. And he says, even though I am, it's a, it's a way to, to say, you know, I'm, I am this person. I am all these things. I am of such a kind. I am of that person that, that he mentions his name again, which he doesn't do a lot of times. He, he says it in, in a few examples. Where does this? Ephesians 3 and verse 1. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Galatians 5 and verse 2. He also says, I'm Paul and I'm exhorting you in this way. Here he uses his name again. We usually see his name right in the in the salutation, the first verse of the of his letters. But Harry puts it right kind of in the in the middle of this letter, and he reminds people, hey, reminds Philemon, I am Paul, which would remind him, I'm a persecutor of the church. But in Philemon's mind, Paul, the apostle, Paul, the one who's given his life for the declaration and proclamation of the scriptures, the gospel of Christ, the one Paul who has been imprisoned, the one Paul who who didn't found this church in Colossae, but was so used by God while well, he was in Ephesus and used by God in Epaphras' life. And, and this is Paul we're talking about. And so Paul reminds Philemon, hey, remember who I am. Remember what I could do. Remember how, what I have done. And you, you give uh, proper uh, you know, due consideration to what I'm speaking to you. He says, I am such a one as Paul, the aged. And there's a question there. The aged. Does he want, is that kind of a, a and I, I speak crassly perhaps, but is that a, a playing a card, you know, a sympathy card, you know, I'm, I'm old and infirm and all this, or is it, or is it somebody who's, you know, I, I'm older than you in the faith, maybe also in years, although who knows what the ages of these individuals are, but is it, is it, is it a term of humility or is it a term of respect your elders and listen to those, you know, uh, honor the hoary-headed person and rise before. So how, how is he presenting this? How is he uh, playing the, these uh, characteristics that he, he has? And maybe your translation says the old man or an old man or an aged man. A lot of translations have that, uh, that phrase, an old man. But there's another strain of thought regarding this word, this word, the aged, as it's translated here. And that is to say that he is, he is an ambassador. And you think, what in the world relationship does oldness have to do with being an ambassador? Well, the word can be spelled, uh, the word for old man, the word for ambassador are, are basically the same word except for one letter. And even in that case, it can be used, it's spelled different ways or spelled the same spelling can apply to the two different terms. Uh, for example, I will quote in, uh, in um, 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 31. Why do I quote 2 Chronicles? That's old. Well, because the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is informing the, a lot of the, the New Testament authors as they are referring to Scripture, quoting Scripture. They, a lot of times they quote the Septuagint. And it talks about the envoys or the ambassadors or the rulers of Babylon that come to Jerusalem and, and see stuff and, and what goes on there. So envoys or ambassadors, those who represent them. A lot of times the, the envoys, the ambassadors, are the older elder statesmen, right? The, the older people in the government or in the society that, that would represent the the nation to another nation. And so there's that relationship to it. But that the spelling of the words is also used several times in the book of Maccabees. First Maccabees talks about messengers, ambassadors, envoys, as we saw in Second Chronicles. And so this idea of ambassadors, well, is, is that a thought that Paul has on other occasions? Yes, actually, Ephesians 6 and verse 20. 
Ephesians 6.20. Ephesians, of course, is another one of those prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all written while Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And he had the thought in his head in Ephesians 6.20 that I am an ambassador in chains. I'm an ambassador. I represent Christ. I, I am one who is an envoy, a, a, a proclaimer of, of Christ's kingdom come on earth and coming on earth. And so he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. And so you th- see the connection here if we, if we take that phrase, the aged one. And then he mentions he's a prisoner, which is to say he's in chains. So those two ideas, at least in Ephesians 6.20, are very much tied together. What's the big point? The point is, is he presenting himself in a humble way, a, a, in a compassionate way, or, or, uh, eliciting or, or drawing compassion from Philemon for his, for his issues? Or is he saying, you know, remember, I'm Paul, and I am, if we take the ambassador route, I'm the ambassador of Christ. I'm in chains for the gospel. I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding around with my obedience to Christ. I'm willing to go to the floor, to the mat, to the death, for Christ's sake. And, you know, I could come in here. I could tell you exactly what to do. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to appeal, plead with you, yet for love's sake. He says, you know, I, I am so willing to be misunderstood even in this regard because I want Christ to be honored. I want you to fully evidence all the things that are going on in your life. Remember back in verse 6, Philemon verse 6, he says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. Paul wants Philemon to act like a Christian in this specific situation with Onesimus. It's a big deal. So when we approach one another, we have a full expectation that the other person we're talking to is going to do what Isaiah 66 and verse 1 says, to be humble and contrite and tremble at God's word, that we would listen. I mentioned Matthew 18 about if your brother sins, go to him privately and rebuke him. Um, or show him his fault privately. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Well, listens to you, what's that about? Humbly, contritely, trembling at the word of God, not based on my, you know, suave or, or even gentle, reasonable expression of truth, but based on the truth itself. It's God's word that brings this change. It's God's indwelling spirit, which we trust is in, in, in folks that profess Christ. The problem comes when there are Christians, you know, quote unquote Christians who don't have the spirit, don't have that contrition, humility, and, and the trembling at God's word. And we assume they're Christians because they said they were. But when we talk to them about things that are important in their lives, they, they kind of slough it off and they, they don't, they don't uh, respond well to it. There's no change in that person's life. And so we want to recognize Christ's work is effective toward those who want it to be effective. It works for those who want it to work, and which is a, those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, those who have the indwelling spirit, have that, that humble posture before God, praying and imploring him and, and wanting to see Christ more evident in our lives. Paul is so much motivated, animated, to see Christ fully formed in Philemon, also in Onesimus, also in Tiki, also in himself. I mean, he's always saying, I press on. I, I want to press on. I want to persevere in God's grace and be more like Jesus as a result of this situation or that situation, pressed, conformed to the image of his son. He says here, I am pleading with you. I am pleading with you. I am pleading with you. In fact, he says it he says it twice. I just said it three times. Verse 10 says, I plead with you. I already said it. I'm pleading with you. Not because I could have commanded you, but I am pleading with you. And this... 
the way he says it in, in the original language, uh, in the, his original writing, he doesn't mention the name Onesimus until that phrase here. In other words, let me read it as it would read in, in the original. It says, I plead with you for my child of whom I became a father in my chains, Onesimus. He doesn't say the name first. Why, why is that important? What, you, what in the world are you? Good grief. You, read, you could read a, a, a huge theological tome in a comma, placement of comma. Get over it. I'm just looking at you because that's what you're telling me. No, let me tell you. Paul says, I'm telling you, Onesimus is a believer. I'm telling you this. He's a changed man. He is different. I'm not telling you his name yet. I'm saying that he has become a child in the faith. Not that, you know, he says, he, I became a father in my chains. It doesn't mean he, he adopted him or anything like that. No. Christ, or excuse me, Paul often uses that terminology of, of parentage or, or um, begotten or, or child, you know, my child in the faith. He mentions that a lot about Timothy and Titus, my genuine child, my genuine child according to our common faith. So there's that. It's, it's a spiritual connection, not a biological or even a legal, you know, like adoption. He says it also in Galatians 4. And this is a profound statement of it. Galatians 4 verse 19 says, my children, Paul's talking to a bunch of Galatian churches in Galatia, the region of Galatia, he says, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ has formed you, but I could wish to be present with you now to change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. I, I, I thought better things about you, but what I'm hearing is so upsetting. But listen, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I, I'm going back to even uh, you know, the, the evangelism stage of, of are you in Christ? Do you understand what Christ has done for you? Do you understand what you cannot contribute anything to your salvation except your sin? Not your righteousness, not your good works, not anything like that. Your sin is what you contribute and your faith, your repentance, turning away from sin and clinging to Christ. So this idea of begottenness is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, starting in 15 and 17. He mentions, I became your father, you're my child, and so forth. So that idea, Paul became the father of Onesimus because Onesimus believed in the gospel through Paul's ministry. And he says, I became a father in my chains. And lest you think, well, good grief, Paul is in prison or he's in, under house arrest. He's been there for a number of years. And certainly he really is not having much of ministry at all. He, he would love to be out there preaching the gospel in the synagogues and in the marketplaces and with the philosophers and the house, house to house. And here he is cooped up in a house. And yet God is giving him fruit for his labor, even in that situation. You don't always get to see the fruit of our labor sometimes. But Paul says, I became a father in my chains. At times when I thought I was, you know, shelved and, and useless to God, now I see that, wow, the gospel can change people's lives right here, changing my life. And my heart, Paul will go on to say, my heart has been knit together with this guy Onesimus. When I send them back to you, it's like sending my own heart back to you. You guys, you understand the encouragement that Onesimus has been. And so Paul is very careful to say here, this is a Christian guy. This is one who I know is what he's done. I, he's told me all about it. He's going to come back to you and make restitution. And if he, if he can't, then you know, charge it to my account. He's all say here in a little bit. But first he says, he is a changed man. I became a father to him in my chains. And he then says his name Onesimus. There's a play on words that we'll get into next time in verse 11 about being useless and now useful as to, relates to his name Onesimus and, and uh, some other words that relate to that. But the point here is that Paul is graciously, kindly, reasonably speaking truth 
to Philemon, not browbeating him, not saying, you know, I expect better things of you. He said that to Galatians because they were just wayward. He said it to Corinthians, what, you're boasting in this? You ought not boast in that. Get over it. I have um, excommunicated this guy because he is worthy. He's a sinner. He, get him out of there. You cannot have light and darkness together. You cannot be unequally yoked in the, in the marriage sense and in the, in the church sense. Cleanse the evil. Get the evil out from among you, 1 Corinthians 5 would teach. So Paul is very bold in a lot of respects, but in this case, he says, I have so, I love Philemon. I know that Christ is active in his life. I know that he is, he is submissive and, and humbly obeying God's word. And so I don't need to, I don't need to you know, twist his arm behind his back. I don't need to uh, even assume upon his, uh, his love for Christ. I can appeal to him. I can plead with him. I can encourage him. I can allay some of those fears, some of those concerns that, that Philemon would have about this Onesimus who wronged him. They wronged him. And yet Paul says, receive him. Receive him back. Forgive him. doesn't use that word forgive, but this is essentially what he's, what he's asking for, the good thing, to see that what is fitting, what's appropriate. Philemon, you have been forgiven so much. Can't you forgive Onesimus, what he's done to you? He has become a child, become my, my son in the faith. Well, I've been in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he says, I am just asking you to do what is right in this situation. We have great responsibility individually to respond to God's teaching, to respond humbly to what God is teaching us through our personal Bible reading, through we flip the radio and this preacher doing whatever he's doing, or on a Sunday, or whenever we, or, or when we, we speak truth, you know, ministering the Word of God through authentic relationships, we have a personal responsibility to listen and evaluate ourselves and say, wow, you know, I, that's, that's true, I should be doing this, or boy, I shouldn't be doing that, or, or things, and, and not take the offensive, well, who are you to tell me what to do? I mean, good grief, look at all the, the bad things going on in your life, and you don't have this in order. No. If somebody's taking the time to, to speak the truth and laying out concerns, then listen. Listen to the person, and then make the changes that need to happen in your life. Do what is fitting. Uh, make the good things, he says, that you'd have the full knowledge, that not just knowing what you ought to do, but then doing it, right? Have that experiential knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. Christ does not ask us to do things that he has not empowered us to do, which is to say, misquoting Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In that context, it's about contentment. But really, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to do what with? To obey him, to be fruitful, to, to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, to see him glorified and praised in our words, in our relationships, in the attitudes we have, in the expressions of our faces. And not just, uh, as, as people say about churchy faces, you know, putting, putting on, like you put on the Sunday best, you put on your Sunday churchy face so that nobody will know what's really going on in our hearts and the relationships and the concerns and the burdens that we have. Being authentic, being genuine, not being fake, uh, and, and being discerning about how, how deep we'll go with any particular person, but, but not being on the defensive to say, you know, who are you to, to speak in the mind of her? Who, who, who are you to ask this kind of question of me? We're, we're brothers and sisters. We love one another. We want God's truth to be evident in our midst. And then as we represent that saving gospel to a world that that is very skeptical, knows all about the hypocrisies in the church, and says, I don't, I don't, you know, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want that. That's powerless, has no power to change that person's life. Look at him. Look at her. We want to be 
not based on our own strength, based on Christ's strength in us. Let those good things flow out of us, flow out of our conduct in, in this world so that people would say, whoa, there is a God, there is a Christ who changes lives. To look at Paul's life, Saul of Tarsus, and then that Paul the Apostle, stark difference, mainly in terms of self-righteousness and all of his pride and arrogance to humility and, and serving other people, laying down his life, working with his own hands and meeting his needs and those about him. That's what we need to be consumed with. And Philemon, I think, responded well as we'll go along in this, in this text, forgiving, loving, being so gracious as Paul said, you've been shown grace. Show grace to other people. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. We're grateful that you do change lives. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we pray that your word would change lives even this morning. Please help us to be humble, submissive, uh, contrite, trembling at your word. Please help us to grow. It's not like we have ever arrived. We, we are there. We're mature. We're complete in Christ. Well, we are, but we strive to be more complete, more mature, more grown up into Christ who is our head. He's a beautiful head and yet our, you know, looking at us we think, boy, we're weak and, and sickly and you know, not fully formed. Help us to grow. Help us to be your people. Help us to be ambassadors in this lost and dying generation offering the hope of the gospel, hope of Christ, forgiveness of sins, real living, real meaning and identity through Christ. Please save any year. Please sanctify all of us. We will be more like Christ as a result of our time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.